please bow your head in prayer with me. Dear Father, you are the king of everything. You are in control. Nothing comes as a surprise to you. We are your people, and yet, like Ben, I appreciate his words of being full of anxious, anxiety, and worries. I do pray that we would trust you, not in ourselves, not in money, positions, or power, but we entrust in you, the good, holy, and great God, the creator God, who gives and sustains life. Calm our spirits, remove the fear. Pray that for everyone in this room. I pray it for around the world. Where chaos appears to be running rampant and death is all over the place, and wars, and shootings, and silent suffering of trafficking of people, it's very depressing. But Father, you are the good God. Pray that your spirit would pour out, would break forth, crushing Satan and the enemies of death, and that you would bring about life. Pray for those suffering around the world that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would comfort, comfort them, be with them, bring an end to the tragedies and the loss. And through all of that, somehow, redeem it. Make it beautiful. Make it whole. Make it lovely. I pray for each of us here today that we would be encouraged by your word and the actions of Jesus and what he means for us, the life he brings us. You may not remove our toils and our trials, but bring us through them. Walk beside us. Give us a vision of you and of heaven and eternity. I lift these things up and I pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And you may recognize and remember that this was the text last week. So here are these words. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the, tomb had been the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must first rise from the dead. 
Then the disciples went back to their homes. Sean, would you come up? Thank you, Chad. Good morning. morning. It is finished, but it has not ended. It is finished, but it has not ended. Wonder of wonders, the cross does not end John's gospel. One of my favorite stories, which I've shared before, but I'll share again, is, is this. The Welsh king Brude asked St. Brandon, a Columban monk of the 6th century, this question. Supposing I accept your gospel and become Christ's man, what will I find? St. Brandon famously answered, if you accept the gospel of Christ and become his man, you will stumble upon wonder upon wonder and every wonder true. As I've been working through these texts in John over the last six months, that's where I've been living, in wonder. I've lived in wonder as I've studied the Passion texts at Jesus' love for us and his determination to do his Father's will and drink the cup. And then, as I've lived in these resurrection texts, I've been filled with even more wonder. <laughs> I hope I can convey a little bit of that wonder with you this morning. This week in John, we find ourselves midway through that first resurrection appearance on the morning of that first Easter. You just heard the first 10 verses read by Chad. And as you heard, Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John are the first ones at the empty tomb. However, much of John's focus in those first 10 verses are on the grave clothes. They are seemingly still wound as if the body of Jesus had simply evaporated through them. And as we, as we said last week, this is important because John is contrasting what happened with Jesus with what happened to Lazarus in chapter 11. When Lazarus came back from the grave, he was still bound in his grave clothes. Jesus, on the other hand, leaves all the grave clothes behind, signaling, signaling that something different has happened to him. Lazarus was rescued from death. Jesus passed through death and came out the other side. Lazarus would die again. But Jesus had entered into a new existence where he would never die again. Lazarus had been resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. So we pick up the story today. After John and Peter had gone back to their homes, leaving Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Loyal Mary. That's what she's called. Loyal Mary, the last one at the cross, and the first, first one at the tomb, and the last one at the tomb. 
So this morning, I invite you to come along with me as we walk with Mary Mag- Magdalene again this week as she experiences the reality and the wonder of the resurrection. So John 20, beginning in verse 11, and I'll be reading from the ESV. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So, two uh, scene-setting verses. Loyal Mary stays at the tomb and weeps. John tells us twice that she's weeping, suggesting she is deeply grieving. And like John in last week's text, she doesn't go into the tomb. She kneels down and looks into it. Now, from the next few verses, we know she's looking for a body. She's looking for a dead body. But she doesn't see a body. Instead, she sees two angels dressed in white. Now, the presence of the angels implies the presence of God. Again, emphasizing that this tomb was not a place of grave robbing, but a place of holiness. John is, again, very careful in his attention to detail. He doesn't tell us about the kind of bench that the angels are sitting on, but he tells us exactly where the angels are seated. One was sitting where Jesus' head had rested, and one was sitting where Jesus' feet had rested. Someone has said Jesus was crucified between two thieves, and resurrected between two angels. So, so why two angels? And why in this arrangement? Well, where else in Scripture do we find two angels seated like this? Do you know? Very good. On the Ark of the Covenant. In the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, God tells Moses to make two cherubim for the cover of the ark, one on one end and one on the other end. And the place between the two cherubim is called the mercy seat or the place of atonement. For this is where the blood of the lamb was spread the blood that atoned for sin. This is the seat of grace. God then tells Moses that between the two cherubim is where I will meet you. And so what John wants us to see here in chapter 20 with the two angels is a new seat of grace. John is confirming again that Jesus is where we meet the living God, and he is confirming again that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. His body laid between the two angels. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sin of the world. And the tomb now serves as the ark of the new covenant. (laughs) For here is the new seat of grace. This new world that Mary has discovered is grounded in grace. Amazing grace. Well, the two angels now speak to Mary, verse 13. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So the angels begin by asking Mary why she's weeping. We know why she's weeping, don't we? She's lost everything. She's lost everything that matters to her. She had felt loved by Jesus. She had felt accepted by Jesus. She had been freed from the grip of evil by Jesus. She had found joy and peace in him. She had felt great dignity from him. He probably was the first man to treat her with dignity. And now he was dead. And she can't find the body Understandably, she is overcome by grief. She simply cannot understand what is happening. And the angels know all of this, but the angels know something else. (laughs) They know what has really happened, and they know that her tears do not match the new reality, the reality of the new world. So while looking at the angels, Mary becomes aware of another presence behind her. So she turns around and sees a man. John tells us that this man is Jesus, but Mary doesn't know that yet. So here's the first appearance of the resurrected Jesus. And he speaks. He asks the same question as the angels. Woman, why are you weeping? He, of course, knows why, but he asks the question because he wants to bring Mary and us out of the darkness. He does this a lot, especially in John. He asks a lot of questions because questions have a way of engaging us and drawing us out and probing the deeper reality of something. But then he asks another question. Whom are you seeking? This question has been the question of the entire gospel. It's the first question Jesus asked to his first would-be disciples. It was the question that he asked to the arresting party in Gethsemane. And now he asked Mary, whom are you seeking? Mary doesn't know who he is, so she assumes he's the... Cemetery maintenance worker, (laughs) or gardener. This is the only time in the New Testament that the word gardener appears. Mary assumes this man is the gardener. 
And it turns out she's absolutely correct. This man is the gardener with a capital G. God the gardener. God the gardener was walking in the garden in the cool of the morning, the garden that had become a cemetery. Now John's been preparing us all the way along for this moment. He began his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, which of course echoes Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that first creation, God creates through the Word for six days, and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be, let there be, let there be, and there was, and there was, and there was, and it was Good, it was good, it was very good. Now on day six, God creates humanity in his image and he places them where? In a garden. The Garden of Eden. And it's there where Genesis says God walks with humanity in the garden in the cool of the day. Now back to John, chapter 18 Remember, the passion narrative began in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where as Jesus is being arrested, he says that he is, I am, which makes the arresting party fall down. Do you remember that? In chapter 19, John told us that the crucifixion and resurrection both occur in a garden. And now chapter 20, on the first day of the new creation, Mary turns and sees the gardener, God the gardener, in the cool of the morning. Isn't that cool? (laughs) But she doesn't recognize him at first. So through her tears, she asks him where the body is. Where's the body? And if, if he moved it, she'll go get it. She will? I mean, I, I don't know how big Mary is, but I'm not sure she could, mar- could carry a dead corpse. But this comment speaks to the depth of her love for Jesus. She'll do whatever it takes. But it's also a testimony to how much grief can get in the way of things. Standing right in front of her is the resurrected Jesus, but she's blinded by her grief. But then he speaks again, verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So here's the moment of revelation. Jesus says, Mary. I've tried to figure out how he said it. Mary. Or Mary. 
I don't know. I wish I knew. But what I do know is in chapter 10, Jesus had told his followers that he was the good shepherd. The good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name and they know his voice. Regardless of how that voice is heard, whether it be scripture or a book or a friend or through circumstances or the good shepherd himself, the sheep, his sheep know his voice. And hearing her name on his lips breaks through all the darkness. She responds with Rabboni, teacher, which he is, but we know he's a lot more than that. And what was it that brought Mary into Easter's new reality? It wasn't the face of Jesus. It wasn't the touch of Jesus. It was his voice calling her name. This is such an important point to make because that's the way it is for us today. We can't see his face yet. We, we can't touch him yet. But we can hear his voice calling our name. Mary, understandably, throws her arms around Jesus with a big bear hug. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Jesus then says, do not cling to me. Now these words cause all kinds of strange interpretations. But he doesn't say this because it's wrong to hold on to him. And, and he doesn't say this because there's something ethereal about him. He says it because things are different now. Things are simply different now. The old way Mary knew Jesus has now changed. Remember, Mary was preoccupied with finding a physical body, but now she can't rely on his physical presence anymore because he's ascending. He's ascending. So he says, don't hold on to me because I'm ascending to my Father and it's there I can pour out my spirit. That's what he's saying. And my spirit will then be my presence with you and in you. Everything has changed due to the crucifixion, the resurrection, and soon to be ascension. And she must now go tell everyone about this change. But there's more here, and, and this, is, this is the heart of the text. Notice that Jesus says, verse 17, go to my brothers and sisters. The word here is inclusive of both male and female disciples. But note that this is the first time in the gospel where Jesus calls his followers brothers and sisters. Before now, the term was only used of biological kin. But here, 
He calls his, brother, his followers brothers and sisters for the first time. He had previously called them disciples or students. On Thursday night in the upper room, he had called them friends. But now, brothers and sisters. Why? Why now? Well, Jesus instructs Mary to go tell the disciples, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Go tell them, Jesus says, that I'm alive. Yes, tell them that. But even more, tell them that there's a new order of relationality. Tell them that because I have died and rose again, they can now call my God Father. And they and you, Mary, can now enjoy the same relationship I have enjoyed for all eternity. The same relationship I have with the Father. That's the heart of this text. Now we're going to come back to that in a moment when we get to the end. But before we do, let's finish off our text. We see that Mary obeys Jesus. With her grief now turned to joy, she goes. She goes. The first person sent with the gospel. For this reason, Mary has traditionally been called the apostle to the apostles. As Isaiah had said, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And because of her good news, the world will get turned upside down. Blessed are her feet. <laughs> so that's our text for today. A wonder-filled text. I think it's become my favorite resurrection text. So what are some implications then? What, what can we learn from this wonder-filled text? Well, I have four for you this morning. First of all, Mary's story tells us that long before we recognize Jesus' presence, he is present. He is there. Jesus is there. How long had he been standing there behind Mary? We don't, we don't know, but I wonder when the angels asked Mary why she was weeping if they were looking over her shoulder to Jesus standing right behind her. In Luke, how long was it before the disciples on the Emmaus Road realized Jesus was there? The text says that it was long enough for Jesus to explain to them all the scriptures written about him. How long was it before you realized he was there? He's there. As someone has said, because of the resurrection, Jesus is the eternal contemporary. Always there long before we know it. Secondly, Mary's story tells us why we are typically unaware of his presence. As we've seen in this text and throughout John, it takes a while for people to understand what is happening. 
Mary's not getting the point here, even though the facts are right in front of her. And why? Well, in this case, I think the answer is grief. Mary's overcome by grief. Mary is unaware because of the intense sorrow, the disappointment, and the loss of hope. Grief has so dominated her, and I don't blame her, but it's so dominated her, she doesn't see what was there. She doesn't see who was there. Grief is a powerful uh, force, as many of you know. It can cause us not to see what is right before us and can cause us to make false deductions for what we do see. And sometimes all of that grief and pain so fills our minds and hearts, we miss the fact that the risen one is right in front of us. Thirdly, what we also learn in this text is that there is also a difference between what and whom. Mary came to the tomb looking for a what? For an it. She came to the tomb looking for a corpse, a dead Lord. And that's why Jesus has to ask her, whom are you seeking? He's helping Mary change her focus. It's not it, but whom? And I think that can speak into into our lives today because sometimes we seek it instead of him. We seek peace or joy or wisdom or purpose or direction in life and we don't find it because it is not the point. The point is him. The point is Jesus. We find it when we find him. We find peace when we find him. We find joy when we find him. We find wisdom when we find him. We find meaning and purpose when we find him. We find life when we find him. Jesus is the point. So whom are you seeking? Jesus Asks. And lastly, Mary's story tells us what Jesus does when he makes himself known to us. This is the great gift of the Gospel of John. When he comes to us and makes himself real to us, he brings us into a new relational existence that has been worked out in his death and resurrection. The great wonder of this story is that we can now, on this side of Easter, have a relationship with Jesus that is in many ways better than the one Mary and the other disciples had. It is better than holding him and seeing him because it extends beyond physical presence. And this was anticipated throughout the upper room discourse when Jesus spoke to the coming of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. In chapter 14, Jesus had said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you when the Holy Spirit is sent in my name to be with you and in you. Jesus' ascension will open the door for the coming of the Spirit 
who will abide with us to the end of the age. And in this way, Jesus will be fully present at all times with his disciples. And it is the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, that enables us to pray, Abba, Father. So Jesus says, do not cling to me. Why? Because he's ascending to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. And as we've seen in the Gospel of John, Jesus lives his entire life in deep intimacy with the Father. He's the only begotten Son, the one and only Son. And now, because he's died and rose again, he can bring us into the same identity in relationship with him as his sisters and brothers. We now become like him, real daughters and sons of the Father. Abba, Father. That's what he's saying. We now have the same rights, the same privileges, the same status that he has enjoyed for all eternity. We live in relationship with him and also live in relationship with the Father. But there's more even. In, back in chapter one, in the very center of the prologue, we get this statement from John, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And John goes on to say that this identity does not come from family name or nationality or achievements. So it seems John, in his prologue, is telling us that the story he's gonna tell in his gospel is gonna lead up to this great moment, this moment right here of Jesus defining the people of God, the new family of God. And this is the announcement he's making on Easter morning. That relationship he has had for all eternity with the Father is now the relationship in which, into which we have been invited. This is your family. This is your family. This is where you belong, where you call Jesus brother and God Abba Father. Isn't that good news? Amen. Well, as I close, I'm going to invite the worship team back up on stage. And let me close with a quote from G.K. Chesterton, which I think captures the thrust of our passage today. This is from his famous book, Everlasting Man. He says this, On the third day, Mary, coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, she realized the new wonder. But even she hardly realized that the world had died in the night. 
What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden, in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. Whereas in that first garden, life brought forth death, in this garden, death brings forth life. For here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wonder upon wonder, and every wonder true. Amen? Now receive this benediction. Because he is risen. Yeah, he is risen indeed. We are family. And there is no place you can go where he will not be present. So go in the assurance that wherever you go this week, he is there. In front of you, behind you, on your right, on your left, above you, beneath you, around you, and in you. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen.